You are Locked On Buccaneers, your daily Tampa Bay Buccaneers podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Time to lock and load. Time to get control. April Fool's. Forfeit the game before somebody else takes you out of the frame. Put your name to shame, cover up your face. You can't run the race, the pace is too fast, you just won't last. What's up and welcome back to the Locked On Bucks podcast. I'm James Yarko, joined as always by David Harrison. You can find everything that we're doing over at BucksNation.com and make sure you follow along on Twitter at Locked On Bucks, at JRCO underscore Bucks, at DH82 underscore Bucks, and at Bucks underscore Nation. We are kicking off the week by tackling a few more of your voicemails that we didn't get to on our episode with good friend of the show, JC Cornell. So, David, without further ado, why don't we just go ahead and dive right in? Hey, James. Hey, David. It's uh, Canyon from Denver again. Uh, just want to comment on the tradeback scenario with uh, Denver. And you know what? If I'm completely wrong about this, you, I'll call back and I'll apologize to y'all. But uh, it seems like John Elway's really, really in love with Joe Flacco. So I don't see them trying to trade up for QB. Um, I mean, he loves them, Paul. He loves them under center. Uh, Joe Flacco just seems like the perfect fit. And John Elway has never been a GM in my mind who really cares about player development. He's in such a win-now attitude and everything's got to happen this year, this year, that I don't think he cares what happens in the next five years with the Denver Broncos. I really don't. Um but anyway, like I said, if I'm completely wrong about this, I will call back. I will apologize. Anyway, guys, uh, y'all have a good day and go Bucks. All right, Canyon, appreciate the call, but uh, why why you got to be harshing on my mellow? Okay, why why you got to be ruining our good time? <laughs> no, I'm I, I kid, I kid. Yeah, the Denver thing was something that I just kind of quickly threw together because. David and I, before the show, had not told each other which team we were trading with. So just so that we weren't both doubling down on the Dolphins, which was, you know, both of the, you know, both of us picked the Dolphins as our as our trade target. So I just tried to throw together something real quick on the fly to try and throw another team in the mix. So you could be completely right and and John Elway has no interest in in trading up to develop anybody. He may, you know, he'll roll with Flacco and then just cross the next quarterback bridge when he gets to it. But, you know, I figured, you know, there was, there was an outside possibility. It seemed like somewhat of a logical trade partner, you know, when I was just trying to put it together real fast. Yeah. I think I even said during the episode, I don't, I feel like the Denver Broncos getting Joe Flacco prevents them from having to really reach for a, for a quarterback in this class. I don't think this is the class where many teams are going to be very happy to be trading up and, and giving away a lot of draft capital. Uh, to grab a quarterback doesn't mean it won't necessarily happen. I just I just don't see it as as an attractive option as as it is in some other seasons. And by and large, you figure there are four top quarterbacks in this class uh, between Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, Drew Locke, and uh, Daniel Jones. I don't think I think Drew Locke fits the mold best for John Elway. And honestly, I mean. I feel like one of those four is going to be there at 10, if not two of them. And I think Drew Locke has a very good chance of being on the board at 10 for the Denver Broncos. Doesn't necessarily mean they'll draft him. It just means that if John wants to go get his quarterback, quote unquote, of the future, 
then Drew is is potentially going to be there. But I definitely see what, what you're saying about John not really being interested in long-term development of a quarterback and all that, which is kind of weird considering it took him a pretty long time to put it all together and get himself a Super Bowl for the Denver Broncos as a player. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of see where he's coming from, I guess, as far as, you know, today's league is kind of all about winning in the moment. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much concern John Elway has. The day the Denver Broncos fire John Elway is going to be a very interesting day in the state of Colorado. But, yeah, I mean, good take on that. I, I don't see the Broncos as the most attractive trade back option. I think that if the Bucks did trade back with the Broncos, it would be a scenario where basically the Buccaneers weren't getting a whole lot of offers for pick five, so they kind of took what they could get and be happy with uh, while moving back and drafting, you know, Devin White. <laughs> you just had to throw Devin White in there, didn't you? I'm just saying. I'm not saying. I'm just saying. All right. Well, David, who's next up on the voicemails? I don't know. That's not helpful. Hey, James. Hey, David. This is uh, Andrew from Brandon, Florida. Um, I hear a lot of chatter uh, from all of us Bucks fans uh, about trading Cameron Brait um, because he's a backup tight end because he costs $7 million against the cap or whatever and how Bruce Arians doesn't really use tight ends in his quote-unquote system. But I was thinking, why can't Cameron Brait be used like as a big slot? You know, he's he matches up very similarly uh, size and weight-wise to like a Jimmy Graham or Larry Fitzgerald, and uh, B.A. is not uh, – he, he's used to using the big slot role in his offense. So he could have maybe Cameron Bray, uh shifting out to the slot with Chris Godwin and Mike Evans on the outside and O.J. Howard to block. That's a complete mismatch to me. Anyway, uh, tell me your thoughts. What do you guys think about that and if uh, that may be a possibility? Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right, David, you want to take this one first or you want me to go? Yeah, we can we can talk about this. So as far as tight end usage is concerned, I think we've all kind of covered this before. It, it's not so much that Bruce Arians' system doesn't allow for you know a uh, solid usage of a tight end. It's more the tight ends that he's had, not, not belittling them in any way, shape, or form. But when Arians was kind of getting – like tight ends have become a little bit more involved in, in offenses league-wide uh, over the last two or three, you know, probably somewhere between two or three or f- in, the, in the last five years. And Arian's offense definitely predates that time period. And it's not something that the Cardinals, honestly, like nobody looked at the Arizona Cardinals and said, oh man, if only they had more usage of their tight end in their offense, they would have won the Super Bowl. Like that just wasn't a thing that was happening. But uh, something that just went up on Bucks Nation today, which is Sunday as we're recording, which was really great, was uh, something written by Evan and John about Bruce Arians offense and something and some of the wrinkles that we might see with them in, in Tampa Bay now. And the very first one they talked about was the usage of two tight ends and how they use those two tight ends to essentially force the defense into a certain look and certain coverage that allowed the wide receivers and a running back to leverage the, the coverage and, and give the quarterback a pretty easy completion uh, downfield. It's kind of one of those things that goes beyond stats. Like, is Cameron Bray going to get a whole lot of stats? I don't know. I don't think so, to be quite honest with you. However, it doesn't mean Cameron Bray's not going to have an impact on the offense. He could he could definitely have an impact because no matter what, you put a tight end out there, he's still an NFL tight end. Whether whether it's whether it's Kelsey or Ertz or OJ Howard or it's I don't know 
the Saints' backup tight end, you still have to cover the guy. Like you, you can't just not cover him. This doesn't pick up basketball where you say, "Oh, that guy's garbage from three, so don't worry about him. Just leave him out there by himself." You can't do that in the NFL. So what what it looks like from Arians' past offenses is he's gonna he's gonna use the tight ends more as leverage to force the defense into a situation that benefits the receivers and the quarterback than he is statistically. However, relationships have a lot to do with that and trust. And as we've talked about time and time again, Jameis Winston has absolute trust in Cameron Brake. Jameis Winston has absolute trust in Mike Evans. Jameis Winston is working on his relationship with O.J. Howard. If you're not on the gram, as the kids like to say these days, you need to get on there because if you're on there, you would see all these videos and clips and and, and pictures or whatever of O.J. Howard, Mike Evans, and Jameis Winston working out in Texas, uh, at least for this past week, if not longer. And that's going to play a role in the upcoming season because O.J. Howard is going to have more of a rapport now with Jameis Winston. They're going to feel more comfortable together. And when Winston is dropping back and scanning the defense, he's going to look for his big Alabama tight end a little bit more often. Now, I know you asked about Cameron Brait, but I'm just talking tight ends in general. I do have a thought on trading Cameron Brait, James, but I'm going to let you attack the first part of that voicemail before I go into that. Yeah, well, it's it's something that Bruce Arians has has mentioned is – it's not that his system can't use two tight ends. He just hasn't had the two tight ends worth using, you know, as far as offensive weapons. You know, when he when he was the offensive coordinator in Pittsburgh, one of the best tight ends in football was Pittsburgh's Heath Miller. And Arians has gone on to say that he hasn't had another tight end that was anywhere near as, as good as Heath Miller. Well, now he's got two. I would say that OJ Howard is on track to be far better than Heath Miller is. And I would say Cameron Braid is a pretty solid Heath Miller comparison. So he could definitely utilize them. I mean, this is a guy whose playbook is as thick as what the white pages would be for the entire United States of America. It's, it's massive. So if you're as, as smart as Bruce Arians is, as far as orchestrating offenses, you can find a way to use two legitimate receiving threat tight ends. Other than that, I mean, really, David, I've, I think you nailed everything else that, that I was going to talk about. And I also kind of have a thought about, about trading Cameron Bray, but I'll kick it back over. So my thought on trading Cameron Bray, and I want to I want to preface this by saying that I absolutely love Cameron Bray. Um, I like what he's brought to the Buccaneers. I respect him for grinding the way that he has from practice squad guy to New Orleans Saints practice squad guy to getting back to the Bucks to what he's what the, to the career that he's carved out for himself. Much like Adam Humphreys, you know, uh, I absolutely love guys who grind it out and and make something out of you know what other people would consider nothing. However, that being said. The Buccaneers have a tight end. They've got one of the top five tight ends potentially in the National Football League in O.J. Howard. And this offensive group, uh, the combination of Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich, and having Jameis Winston for an entire camp, an entire preseason, an entire season, you know, obviously barring disaster, knock on wood, is going to help O.J. Howard get to where we need him to get to. And it's going to push – Cameron Bray into the shadows even more than he already has been. I, I said this, we said this, James, when OJ Howard was drafted. That signaled like the clock on an, on Cameron Bray's time in Tampa Bay was counting down from that moment that card got turned in. You just can't justify keeping Cameron Bray and OJ Howard on the roster. Cameron Bray is going to wear somebody else's uniform someday. 
this is kind of a similar situation to like a LeBron James or a Kyrie Irving, not in that Cameron Brates is like world beater tight end, but it's that he is eventually going to lead the Buccaneers. Do you want to do it and get maximum return as a team? Or do you want to do it and get nothing in return as a team? And I, I lean on what Trevor Sycamore was saying earlier this offseason. Do you want Cameron Braid or do you want a third-round pick? I want a third-round pick. And it's not because I don't appreciate Cameron Braid. It's because when you look at the totality of the Buccaneers roster, what a, what a third-round pick could potentially mean to this team is more than what Cameron Braid could potentially mean to this team. Because... Even if we're right about Bruce Arians and his usage of tight ends, and it's more about the fact that he hasn't had great tight ends versus his ability to use great tight ends, you're not going to feature two tight ends in your offense. Different from using two tight ends, I'm talking about featuring two, like Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, uh, even Brashad Perryman on those deep balls, whoever might get drafted, OJ Howard, Peyton Barber, you know, Andre Ellington, a running back who might get drafted. Those guys are your are your focus. Those are your feature guys in your offense. Cameron Bray is going to be down the line, you know, as far as malice to feed. Whereas bringing in a third round draft pick and I don't know drafting a nickel corner or drafting a safety who might have some better coverage skills than than some of your guys on roster or a depth linebacker who might be able to step in in certain packages. You know, one of the one of those types of guys could have a more profound impact on your roster in 2019 than Cameron Bray could. Yeah, absolutely. And and David, this is something that we talked about basically about a year ago on this very podcast, because I had written for at the time we were at the Peter Plank and, and I wrote about why the Buccaneers should trade Cameron Bray. And boy, did I get attacked for that one. Ooh, um, yeah, you did. And very shortly after he signs an extension, which made me look even dumber. But you look at his contract, you look at the amount of money he's owed, you look at the system that Arians runs, as you said, you, he can use two tight ends, sure. He's not going to feature two of them, especially not with Evans and Godwin and, and Perryman and, and whoever else. I was just a, a, a year too early because the premise of why I thought they should trade Cameron Braid was because of the rumor swirling around that Rob Gronkowski was going to retire. And I felt that Cameron Braid could fill that role perfectly for Tom Brady and the Patriots. So I, I kind of took that and, and ran with it and, and got attacked really, really hard. Um, but it would make a lot of sense for the Buccaneers moving forward. You're not going to continue to pay a secondary tight end the amount of money that Cameron Braid is making. You have a cap-strapped team. So if you can work out a a draft day trade, you know, for that, you know, maybe that third rounder or maybe, you know, we've we've seen the idea floated out now. I think it was on CBS Sports mock draft where the Buccaneers took Cameron Brait and their second round pick or was it Gerald McCoy and their second round pick packaged him to move back up into the first round or you know, you could see something like that. Mm-hmm. With Cameron Bray, you package him, you move back up into into day two or or something to that effect. You save yourself seven million dollars this year and beyond. It, it would all make a lot of sense. Now, as you said, I I love Cameron Bray. He's one of my favorite players. I enjoy watching the way he plays. He's one of the toughest guys on the field. He makes those tough catches. He makes some really athletic catches you know for for a guy his size and you know he he just seems like a genuinely great dude but the business side is the business side and if the buccaneers can get a pick or two out of them or or move themselves back up into uh you know a day two pick 
for for Cameron Bright, then I think you have to pull the trigger. You have to continue to build the roster as a whole, you know, even though you have you know a, a really good tight end there in Bright. You also have an elite one in OJ Howard. You have some flexibility at that position group to help yourself gain the picks to address a position group that isn't nearly as strong. Oh, definitely. And I think the Patriots are a really good uh, team to target. I think that when you're, when you're talking about the new England Patriots, again, to kind of lean on what uh, Trevor was saying earlier this offseason, if you're the new England Patriots, would you rather have, you know, I don't know, Cleanland Farrell and Cameron Bray, or would you rather have Irv Smith jr. And whatever edge defender you draft in the third round? I think if 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 Noah Fant or TJ Hawkinson is there at 32, the Patriots probably just pull the trigger on one of those two guys. But I think if the choice is between Irv Smith Jr. and a third round defender or Cam Brait and a first round defender, uh I I take the first round defender, you know, I, I and that's kind of the the pairing, that's kind of, you know, we're going to see how the draft works out, but like I said, would it's it's it, that's what it really boils down to is you know, is, is third round a little bit too high to pay a team for their backup tight end? Yeah, probably. But you're not, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. It's it's leveraging, you know, futures and you're leveraging scenarios. And the Buccaneers have no need to trade Cameron Bray. Like his his presence on the roster isn't hindering them from progressing, isn't keeping them from doing anything. So they have no motivation to move him. However, the Patriots, again, you know, if it's if it's between, I don't know, Nasir Adderley, or Byron Murphy, or like I said, Cleveland Farrell, or Christian Wilkinson, that you could draft of that first pick without having to draft a tight end to replace Gronk, but you could also have Cameron Bray, just give us your third, and oh, by the way, you already have, what, three more thirds or something from, from compensatory picks, uh, so don't be greedy. <laughs> or, you know, Irv Smith, who is the third, and you know, kind of leaning back on what we talked about before, the third best tight end in this class um, at pick number 32, or Cameron Bray. It's, you know, it's, I don't know, to me, from a Patriots standpoint, it's a pretty simple decision. You keep that first round pick, you draft a defender, either an edge defender, maybe an interior defensive lineman, maybe a safety, I don't know, somebody to, to help play defense. Or maybe you go all out for Tom Brady and you, and you draft yourself a receiver uh, like Marquise Brown or something. And you trade your third round draft pick for Cameron Brayton and you use the rest of your stuff on the defensive side of the ball. Now you reloaded your offense for Tom Brady. And you've improved your defense, and you can make another run at at uh, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Seems like an easy option to me. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. All right, David, let's go ahead and head over to the next voicemail. What's going on, David and James? It's Grico at Grico Suave. So um, I've been listening to uh, a lot of the podcasts, you know, and around the Buccaneers network and stuff like that, and a lot of talk about Chris Godwin and his major role in our offense. Um, but we did not mention how Mike Evans' role was going to change in the offense. I mean, he's been the man for the last five years in our offense. So how is this role going to change, or is it going to be the same? I mean, what's going to go on with him? He's not going to be the number one guy anymore. Um, how does he feel about that, you know? Anyway, if you guys can shed some light on that, it'd be very helpful. Thanks. Talk to you later. Grico, great to hear from you, buddy. However, you have very thoroughly confused me. Why on earth would Mike Evans not be the number one guy anymore? Facts. <laughs> elaborate please no I I don't know I think that I don't think Grico meant that he's not the number one guy I think maybe Grico is just talking about how 
nobody's talking about Mike Evans in this new offense, and nobody is talking about Mike Evans in the new offense. I think that's really kind of kind of what's what's gotten Grico's attention. It's a very uh, it's a very it's a very accurate observation that we're talking about OJ Howard and Cameron Bray in this new offense. We're talking about Chris Godwin in this new offense. We were taught we were talking about Adam Humphreys in the new offense. We're talking about Peyton Barber in the new offense. Rojo. Andre Ellington, Sean Wilson. I mean, we're we're talking about Dario Gumbawali and how he could he might be able to fit into the running back competition. Ryan Griffin, Blaine Gabbert. I mean, all these guys are getting attention as far as how they might fit in Bruce Arians' offense, but nobody's talking about Mike Evans. Because I mean, honestly, in a Mike in, in a Bruce Arians offense, think back to Pittsburgh, think back, think back to Cleveland, Indianapolis, Arizona. Who's your Mike Evans comp? Hmm. Well, it, in Arizona, it's not going to be Fitz because that's going to be the mm-hmm. the Godwin role. That's he's going to be moving inside. Right. I would say in Pittsburgh, the comp would probably be, I don't know, could you say Santonio Holmes? No. Because Heinz Ward was aging, he was shifting inside, and Santonio Holmes was that number one guy on the outside. I mean, the size difference is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, Santonio definitely won more with his 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 feet and quickness than, than Mike ever does. And, and it's, Mike has better uh, – his his size and his wingspan is definitely better than San Antonio's. It's kind of the same thing with Indianapolis because that was something that Arians also talked about, that he had moved Reggie inside and T.Y. became the featured outside guy. But, again, that's more like a San Antonio Holmes comparison. That's the the quickness and the ability to beat opponents with, with speed – and elusiveness rather than than size. I would say that that nobody's really talking about Mike Evans because he's exactly what he is. He is going to be the guy. He's going to be the number one receiver, the number one target. He's going to play on the outside. He's going to do what he's been doing. There's no reason to really mess with that. And I apologize for Netflix dinging in the background. I have no idea how that happened because I don't know where the remote is. Mike Evans' role doesn't really change. I think the biggest change that we're going to see in Mike Evans' role is he's going to have to get better at downfield run blocking because Arians preaches that very, very hard with his receivers. They have to be good at run blocking down the field. And I'm not saying that Mike's not good at it, but he has to get better. And Arians is going to demand that of him. So I would say that that – Evans is, hasn't been a big conversation because there is no change to how Mike Evans fits in the offense. The offense is going to run through Mike Evans, which is what opens up those opportunities for OJ and Cam and Godwin and and Perryman and Barber and Rojo and, and everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, that's just it, – it's not a topic because Evans is a beast. And he's going to do exactly what he does every season. He's going to get a 1,000 yards. He's going to – you know, win jump balls. He's going to beat whoever's, you know, lined up across from him. And, you know, something else that David, that Evan and, uh, and John pointed out in that article that you mentioned earlier is the, the way that the plays are going to be designed to maximize the offense. Like one of the things that they mentioned on, on one of those passes was instead of a 15 yard route and a seven step drop, you're looking at a 10 yard route and a five step drop. So you're getting the ball out of your hand a little bit faster. Things like that are going to open up more opportunities, more completions and more production for guys like Evans and Godwin. And yeah, Evans is going to be used as a decoy 
to help create plays for for OJ and Godwin, the same way that Godwin and OJ are going to be used to open up things for Mike Evans. So Mike Evans' role isn't really changing, and I think that's why it's not being talked about, whereas OJ's in an offense where the tight end isn't generally featured. Chris Godwin is learning a new position to fill that Reggie Wayne, Larry Fitzgerald role. So I think that's kind of why he's been overlooked, but Mike's going to be Mike. Yeah. So I, I predict that Mike Evans is going to have somewhere around 80 receptions, somewhere around a thousand plus yards and somewhere around 26 eight, touchdowns, eight to 12 touchdowns. That's, that's my prediction for Mike Evans, which what he's been his entire career. I like my touchdown prediction better. No, I mean, I like your touchdown, too, but uh, yeah, no, you're, you're hundred percent right. I mean, Mike Evans is Mike Evans. He's not, there's really no way to use Mike Evans other than the way he's been used because he just kind of is what he is, which isn't, which kind of sounds simplistic, but it's, it's really, it's the good thing is that what he is works very well uh, in the national football league. And as far as blocking is concerned, I think Mike Evans, according to his reputation across the league, is going to be okay pushing defenders. It was was that a reference to the offensive pass interferences? Yes, of course, of course it is. Because you you made the comment of pushing defenders, and all I could think of, granted, I thought you were going to continue talking, but <laughs> all I could think of was him tossing Terrence Newman around like he was a freaking <laughs> ragdoll. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's one of my all-time favorite moments ever, uh, mostly because of my hatred for the Bengals, but it was also just a, a fun play. Well, like, dude, you're you're on defense, and it's a run play, and the receiver that you're going up against is 11 inches taller than you. Why are you jumping? Like, who does that? Yeah. Um, I'm not worried about Mike Evans and run blocking. I think that Bruce Arians will, will get through to him. I don't. I I don't have a problem really when you when you talk about receivers run blocking. It's more of a team atmosphere mentality than it is anything else. It's how how important do you think you are to the success of your teammates and receivers who don't care or don't think that that's important will not want to block, but receivers who think that it's important will will want to run block now how committed mike will be once you know the fighting happens and, and all that stuff is, is totally different but um I'm, I'm not too concerned about it. honestly if i'm coaching mike evans and i'm on this new staff really what i want to find from him is is more just just getting separation i want to find ways to leverage what mike evans does best to get separation because that's really the biggest the biggest uh flaw i think in, in evans game as a pro is that there are times where he will allow defenders, he will essentially take for, I don't want to say take for granted, like as a deliberate act, but almost subconsciously take for granted his size differential and his wingspan against defenders and just kind of let them hang around too much uh, within within his catch radius. And sometimes that'll cause problems. And that's where you see some of these catches uh, or some of these balls that should be caught become drops because they're contested or overly contested. So that's kind of something I would I would want to see a little bit out of Mike Evans. But again, that's a very nitpicky thing. Like it's not even something that he does. He do, he doesn't do well. It's just something he maybe could do better. Right. Uh, I think I think that Mike will be fine. And what I really like about what John and Evan wrote is something that I talked about shortly after Bruce Arians' rumors started swirling um, on Bucks Nation as well. The difference between so in, in essence, Dirk Cutters and Bruce Arians' offense is really are kind of rooted in the same type of vertical attack, right? However, the difference is this. 
And, and the way I use this in an example with, in a conversation I had with someone uh, recently was when when you're teaching someone to drive, right? I'm doing that right now. I have a 16-year-old daughter I'm teaching to drive. Do you teach them to watch the car that's that, that's around them or do you teach them to watch the horizon? Oh, you always keep your eyes up. Watch right. the you teach them to watch the horizon, right? However, there are people out there, we've seen them, who only concern themselves with the car that they feel is most important to what's happening around them, whether it's the car in front of them, the car next to them, the car behind them. Whatever I'm trying to do, as my clock interferes with what I'm saying. So we, we all have encountered the drivers on the road, right? Who, who keep their eye on one vehicle or one car ahead of them or, or whatever. And it doesn't always cause problems, but it definitely can cause problems. The smarter way of reading the road is to keep your eye on the horizon and kind of take in the picture and look for keys. And in football, those are called reads. And that's the difference that I'm hoping to see. Now, I wasn't in the meeting room or and I wasn't in the huddle and practices, okay? But what I will tell you is that under Dirt Cutter's offense, what it looked like Jameis Winston was doing or what it and, – and in connection there, I'm going to say what it looked like he was coached to do is this is our primary target on this play. We want to attack this position of the field with this route, with this receiver, look to see if that's going to work. When that doesn't work, then you start working through your progressions. The problem with that is while you're waiting for that route to develop or to see if it's going to develop, everything else that's happening around you is not being was not being understood. So then by the time his eyes come off of that primary read, everything that's going to happen, a lot of it has already happened. So a lot of the Adam Humphreys is wide open seven yards down the field. Well, he's not looking at the field that way. He's looking at, I don't know, Cameron Bray running the seam. And on that read, if the safety isn't immediately on top of Cameron Bray and the linebacker is, is you know, a yard or two underneath, try to drop it in the bucket. So if I'm Jameis Winston and that's what I'm told to do, as soon as the ball is snapped, I'm watching Cameron Bray. I'm watching to see where the defenders are around that car. And if it looks like the read I need, I go for it. I'm not looking at everything else. However, the difference in what I'm what I what I saw. So I did a similar tape study uh, that John and Evan did. I did not get nearly as in depth with the film work on my column for Bucks Nation uh, shortly after Bruce got hired. Which uh, again, kudos to them. But what you see is levels, right? You and and every scheme has levels. Even the Buccaneers' offense under Dirk Cutter had levels. The difference is exactly something that we talked about last year that it didn't look like Jameis Winston was doing is keying in on what certain defenders crucial to that play were doing. And that's where things get different between what Evan and John showed with Carson Palmer in Arizona versus what we saw with Jameis Winston in the last two years. What Carson Palmer was doing in Arizona was reading a defense, understanding his layout of his routes and say, okay, it, it, with the way the defense is lined up, if let's just say, for example, if this middle linebacker, stays inside the left hash. So he, he stays on the on the right hand from the offensive side of the ball. If he stay if he stays on the right half of the field from the from the far hash mark over, then I know that I have it underneath read to this player. However, my next read isn't a receiver. My next read is a defender. If the on top safety drops down, then that route's gone. I have to hit my underneath my dump off. But if that safety backs off, then I know I have this five to 10 yard post out, whatever it is, you know, uh, open available based off of what I'm reading on the defense. That's how I feel like 
Like if I ran an offense, that's how I'd want my quarterback to read the field is read the defense, see what key players are going, which direction. And that will give you a roadmap on where you're supposed to go with the ball. Cause when you do that, you can read it much faster. If you're reading a, a 20 yard post, you need all seven steps to read that 20 yard post. But by the time you get to the top of that drop or the bottom of that drop, whatever, by the time you get into your depth, if you realize that post isn't going to work, now you're at the top. Now you're out of rhythm. And now you're looking around and you're saying, who's open? So you're no longer reading, developing plays because the development part has already happened. So now we're just playing old school football, you know, in the backyard or on the street. And that's not ever going to be successful in the National Football League. What I see with Bruce Arians in Arizona and even going back to his time with Peyton, I mean, think about Peyton Manning, think about Andrew Luck. That's what these guys do. They read the defense. They understand what the defense is going to give them for their offense that's been called, and that's where they go with the ball. That's what I'm expecting to see out of James Winston in 2019, which different conversation for a different time, but it's also why we're a little bit worried there's going to be a little bit of regression before there's progression. David, I'm do hoping we have- all of that made sense. Oh, it absolutely did. Did we have any more voicemails or was that it? Oh, that's it. We wiped him out. We wiped him out. All right. Well, uh, I know we're we're up against the clock anyway, so uh, best of luck editing this down to within our time constraints, uh, Mr. Harrison. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> we will be back tomorrow with more Buccaneer stuff to talk about. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but by God, we're going to talk about it. Um, until then... Make sure you're checking out everything going on over at BucksNation.com. We still have our draft profile series going. 40 prospects in 40 days all the way up until the NFL draft. Make sure you're sending us your voicemails to 813-444-5841 if there's something you want to hear us talk about, whether it's the Bucks as they stand now, anything about the draft, anything you know that you want to hear debated or discussed or answered. Make sure you're giving us a call. Check out everything that we're doing on Twitter at Locked On Bucks, at JRCO underscore Bucks, at DH82 underscore Bucks, and at Bucks underscore Nation. Hope you all have a fantastic day. Don't get tricked by any April Fool's jokes. And thanks so much for joining us right here at Locked On Bucks. There's a hole in your wisdom, a hole in your sky. Search for soul and start again.